One of the first hotspots of the COVID-19 virus identified in Canada was at a care home here in North Vancouver. And since then, there have been multiple care homes identified with positive cases of COVID-19 across the country and in many provinces. So what makes care homes particularly vulnerable, as well as what we can do to help, if anything, to protect the vulnerable residents? A pleasure to welcome Colin Furness to the program. Mr. Furness is an infection control epidemiologist and an assistant professor with the Faculty of Information at the University of Tirana. Professor Furness, Colin, good morning, sir. Good morning. It's good to have you with us, Colin. This uh, this uh, COVID-19 pandemic was identified right from the get-go as being particularly lethal to the elderly, seniors in our midst. And we've had far too many uh, demonstrations of precisely that at care homes. Talk to us a little bit, sir, about what you understand to be the biggest problem with care homes. All respiratory viruses, and we can start with influenza, are really dangerous for elderly people. The older you get, um, the more dangerous it is. Our lungs are just less efficient, less effective, and our immune systems get weaker and weaker as we age. Mm -hmm. COVID-19 is particularly virulent, and it is not exactly novel, but novel enough that we don't, as a population, have nearly the kind of immunity we would hope. So it's a real double whammy if you're elderly and you happen to contract COVID. so that's, that's, a, that's a really, really serious problem. The second problem is when you think about long-term care homes or other kinds of institutionalized settings, you're then putting a lot of vulnerable people together in one place. So that's a little bit like a box of Tinder waiting for uh, a match. And, and that's really the situation we have. It's, it's dangerous. It's worrisome. And obviously, as you say, we have already seen evidence of exactly the kinds of uh, uh, morbidity, morbidity and mortality in these kinds of settings from COVID. It is concerning. Yeah, indeed it is. And uh, Colin, I'd like to just back you up for a second, if you don't mind, because uh, this is a lay audience you have with us early on a Saturday morning, and you used the word novel a few moments ago. And from the get-go, we've understood this particular virus to be known as the novel coronavirus. What does the word novel mean in the description of the virus? Yeah, that's a really important question. So a virus that we have a lot of experience with as a population is something that we tend to build up a little bit of immunity to. And influenza is a great example. Everyone's had the flu at one point or another, so your body knows what that is. If a new strain emerges, your body can say, oh, that is similar to what I've seen before and can mount a good response. A virus that is truly novel is one where your body's immunity has never seen anything like it before. In the case of COVID-19, there are human coronaviruses, common cold viruses, and the the emerging theory now, and I'm going to go ahead and call it a brilliant theory, um, is that we have temporary immunity from COVID, from from sorry, from common cold uh, coronaviruses, which means that if you've had a coronavirus recently, that is a common cold one, you are in better shape to mount an immune response. If you haven't had one, then you're in worse shape, and that explains to a large degree why. For many people, this is a minor thing, and for some people, it's obviously extremely severe. Interesting. Would the having of a typical flu shot uh, late October, November, as many of us do on an annual basis, Colin, mitigate anything with respect to COVID-19? 
Unfortunately, no. They're, they're very, very different uh, critters. So a uh, flu shot's a great idea every year. The, it's the same principle, that your body gets reacquainted with the flu every year and is, is better at recognizing it. And had we had a pandemic flu, I don't think we'd seen nearly the mortality that we're seeing now because of it. However, there's no relationship between influenza uh, and, and COVID-19. They are behaving in similar ways, right. but from an immune system standpoint, they're really quite different. One of the measures that the British Columbia government announced this week, Colin, uh, with respect to care homes, many of which are owned by companies and therefore have workers moving from one facility to another in the course of their weekly duties, the government has restricted workers to one facility only. There'll be no uh, moving from one to another in the course of your normal duties. That is gone. Uh, is that might that measure matter? It absolutely will matter. That is a really important step to take. Um, we call the workers who, who move from one setting to another peripatetic workers, and, and this kind of population has been studied extensively. They do move infections from one place to another. Mm-hmm. Um, so being transferred within a system from one facility to another is one thing. Another is a lot of the, the care workers are not particularly well paid. They need to moonlight. They need to have more than one job, and that's a problem too. So I think long, longer term, we need to actually look at how can, we, um, how can we support these folks better financially so that they don't need to do that. It's difficult work as it is already. It's low status work. It's low pay work. And that contributes to um, having to have more than one job and being be in more than one place. That is a serious problem. And it also in some ways goes a, a, a distance towards explaining why so many of these senior care co- communities are frankly understaffed. No question. Absolutely. Um, staffing, it's a, it's, a, it's a difficult job if you think about uh, people with multiple uh, illnesses, multiple chronic conditions, uh, dementia in many cases. Mm-hmm, yeah. It's a really hard job to manage and, and extraordinarily difficult. And so I, some people may want to vilify these workers as being super spreaders. What I would say is they have a really hard job and we need compassion. And I think the, the rule to restrict movement between facilities is fantastic. I think if anything, we are going to, as a result of, as a direct result of this, we're going to develop perhaps a new degree of respect for many workers in our midst, Colin, people like truck drivers and uh, senior care community workers, people whose jobs we tend to just sort of take for granted, uh, who suddenly, whose importance to making the wheels go round every day is suddenly highlighted to their advantage and ours ultimately, I think. Well, I would like to hope so. Uh, healthcare workers come to mind first, but you're right. All the people who help make sure that uh, food is is on shelves and, and can be had, and, and deliveries come to the door, not just not just their status, but also um, the risk the risk sure. that they have, right? The, the the public safety risk, public health risk. And I I would like to think that one great consequence of COVID-19 is just a great deal of enhanced public appreciation for public health and the kinds of things that we ought to be doing to keep ourselves safe. So Influenza kills 3,500 Canadians a year. So we're not yet with COVID-19 at the rate of influenza deaths. And we, we're going to get there, but but it's it's something to, it's something to bear in mind that we're actually battling flu at the same time that we're battling COVID nineteen, and I see that as a positive. Yeah, and and to those who would sort of uh, react to, to the the COVID nineteen 
uh, reaction by government and saying, well, look, you know, we, we don't have a casualty rate that is in, that is similar even to a typical annual influenza season. Uh, so what are we all getting worked up about? I think they're there. I mean, it, it sounds almost desperate in, in terms of them not wanting to 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 uh, admit to the pandemic in our midst. But as as long as those numbers are still relatively speaking low, uh, uh, we're probably doing okay. Would you agree? I'm not that. I, over the last two weeks, I've become a bit less optimistic. I, I have to admit, um, the, the, we're not there yet. Okay. But it, I'm afraid to say, I think I think lacking um, more stringent control on people's movements, we're we are going to get there. Humans are really not good at nonlinear patterns. Things that seem really really slow, and then all of a sudden, it's it's everywhere. That's the pattern of an epidemic. So it looked like it was manageable and it looked fine until suddenly it isn't. Well, we're doubling in cases every three days. Deaths lag by several weeks, but we are going to see a mortality, um, uh, some total of mortality that is going to be appalling, and we're going to see that everywhere. Well, it's an unfortunate but uh, probably uh, important prediction to hear from you, Professor Furness. Final question to you, sir. Back to the care homes, and we're being instructed on a daily basis as to what we, the public, and with family in these residences, what would you advise in addition to what governments are already telling us in terms of you want to go visit, but you can't, so connect somehow, right? Well, up until a couple of weeks ago, I was actually, I was being asked this exact question around long-term care homes, and I said human contact is really important, and, and the, the outcomes and, and, and life expectancy for elder people in institutions depends heavily on human contact, sure. and we should not be cutting off human contact, but that assumes that we can have personal protective equipment, that we have an adequate supply of masks, for example, of, of other things, of hand sanitizer. It's evident that we don't. And so if we cannot protect the elderly with personal protective equipment to be worn by visitors, then we actually really do, in the interest of saving lives, we really do need to restrict that visiting as, as severely as we have, and, and perhaps even more so. It's difficult uh, for both sides uh, of the glass, because many, of course, are going to the windows and waving at all of that sort of thing, but uh, it's it's good advice to hear it, and I appreciate your taking a few moments to reinforce what we, we already know, but uh, sometimes, uh, you know, we're humans, <laughs> and you just want to go say hi to Grandma, and it's just not going to happen. Thanks, Colin. Appreciate it. Good to hear from you this morning. My pleasure. One of the things that we care a great deal about, I mean, of course, all of this is brought to our the forefront of our attention, our, our, certainly our physical and mental well-being, and uh, indeed, our economic well-being is obviously going to be considered greatly going forward. It has to be. Uh, and, and another some of us, many of us, in fact, have animals in our lives, another dimension of concern. We're delighted to welcome Victoria Schroff to the program this morning. Victoria is an animal rights lawyer, many years practicing animal rights law in Vancouver, and here to talk to us a little bit about the furry critters in our lives. Vicki, good morning. Good morning. It's great to have you with us. Uh, let's start with the most important fact. And I was just looking at your Twitter feed a few minutes ago. As of yesterday, uh, you were indeed again adamantly declaring there is no evidence of any connection between dogs and COVID-19. That's right. That's right. And again, it's, it's, I, I'm just repeating what the experts have said. And sure. that's essentially, you know, that what we're looking at is this is a human to human disease and um and i want to remind people that it's against the law to neglect animals 
under most provincial cruelty statutes and to under no circumstances should you be ignoring your animal, dumping your animal or having fear around your animal that they are going to be a conduit for COVID in your household. Indeed. And that's the problem that uh, you've again identified it a bit on your Twitter feed. And I guess the SPCA would know even better, Victoria, that uh, of some people, I mean, this is causing irrational reactions in many Canadians simply because it's so scary. It's something none of us have ever dealt with in the past. And some of us are kind of freaking out and getting rid of the animals in our lives, uh, sort of eliminating any possibility possibility of infection and you're saying along with a lot of other animal rights advocates that's an unnecessarily unnecessary step too far yeah no i mean animal experts are stressing the fact that though there's so they also say there's currently no evidence that pets get ill with corona but what happened is um that a couple of dogs tested weak positive for corona yep and um, so then that caused a lot of fear, and it's actually more widespread outside of Canada that animals are getting dumped um, and just either being left in the streets. For example, when the immediate lockdowns came in China, animals were just simply abandoned. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so there wasn't necessarily even an active thought to that, but then others were heard to be um, throwing their animals over balconies and killing them and things like this. So it was just, I mean... Images you don't want to talk about or watch, but that were happening and um, it's happening a lot in England as well, where um, they're overwhelming shelters um, when news like this spreads, even though um, there is no evidence that these animals are going to spread it to other animals or even to people. Let's bring the conversation a little closer to home, Victoria. Let's talk about yeah. British Columbia and Metro Vancouver. Uh, what, yeah. are, what are you hearing with respect to abandoned animals at local shelters? Um, I, I've had mostly anecdotal evidence on that okay. from people. And I've seen, I've seen some news feeds on it as well about how basically ignorance is driving this idea that well, I shouldn't keep an animal in the home. It's it's just dangerous. I mean, an animal that's been with people for years and years. I've had calls about this, and I've made it really clear that people are also getting confused with um, the link with wildlife, which is also an, a really important aspect of this whole case because, um, you know, people are talking about the origins of COVID yes. and the linking and the consumption of wild animals with COVID and SARS and Ebola and, um, you know, they guess that COVID started with bats, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, and, you know, that, that other issue is that humans have to stop selling and eating wildlife. Um, you know, we, they, the, the wet markets that, that brought corona to the fore are super unhygienic. Yes. And um, animals are sold in, in many countries. This is, not, this is not just a Chinese thing i think that that's really important to underline mm-hmm. um but it's it's a situation where if we want to prevent future epidemics we need to stop the wildlife trade um and so that's 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 the other aspect when we're talking about animals that we need to tackle things at their roots and at the root of both the domestic um crisis that we're seeing in all western and eastern countries is about domestic animals getting dumped and um, this idea that um, wildlife is something to be consumed.
Mm-hmm. Uh, Victoria, uh, locally, again, uh, with respect to uh, uh, seeing a vet, for example, what's the, yeah. ru- what's the ruling? Because the British Columbia government uh, provided an extensive list of essential services uh, yeah. and those, those businesses that are allowed to uh, remain open and so on. What's the status of veterinarians this morning? Well, I'm, I'm glad to say that um, um, the Honourable Minister Farnsworth did say that vets, vet offices, um, pet stores, animal shelters have been considered COVID-19 essential services. Um, I actually wrote to the minister early in the week and sent him some data that I had, including um, an article that I had written about why this was so necessary, because you can't cut off the um, health care food supply of animals, and that that would have been really serious. Um, and also, of course, vets are the only ones that can prescribe medication. Sure. So we could have been at a you know another crisis. Um, this for our furry friends. So so that was fortunate. Um, and um, cruelty investigations are still going on. Right. Um, so so that 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 would that wasn't going to halt. Um, but in some places, adoptions have been suspended, but uh, fostering of animals, so an intermediary step has been going on. And in fact, fostering numbers are up, I'm told, by quite a lot, where people are saying, I'm at home, I'm going to take care of a pet. Sure. So it's uh, so putting the shoe on the other foot because we started talking about people unloading their pets yep. un- unnecessarily. Yep. The other yep. side of that uh, a coin is the fact that a lot of people finding themselves with more than more than uh, expected time on their hands, and suddenly there is room for a furry little person or critter in their lives. And and you're right, they're fostering, and the the shelters have lowered adoption rates. So there is a bit of a positive glow to to this story. Victoria, thanks for this this morning. It's important information to pass along to pet owners and especially those who aren't. Yes, yes. Thanks very much for inviting me on the show, Sterling. Indeed. In response to the COVID-19 crisis this week, the B.C. provincial government announced it will end virtually all rental evictions, including those currently in process. They will freeze rental increases and they will pay $500 direct to landlords to help tenants battling job and income losses over the next three months. Here to take a look at this as how it affects all parties is Alex Chang. Mr. Chang is a lawyer with... um, Lesperance Mendez lawyers in Vancouver. Alex, good morning. Thanks for being with us. Good to be with you. Thanks, Jerry. Uh, well, you're welcome. And let's take a look about at, at some of the measures announced by the BC government. Uh, and I'm taking a look at it from the perspective of landlords, Alex. David Hutniak is with Landlord BC. He's the boss over there. He was with us last weekend. And I have a quote from him saying uh, that uh, this is, while it's welcome, it's also wide open to potential abuse. So let's take a look at the measures and how they affect both parties. So on the one hand, you have the landlords. Their 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 main way of ensuring that rent is being paid is by threat of eviction. Yes, if you don't pay the rent, you can be evicted. Now that's that's gone away for now, um, and so there is an ability for tenants to potentially abuse this. And um, but. What tenants should realize is that this isn't necess- this isn't a uh, that nothing in any of these announcements make it so that tenants aren't liable for to pay the rent. That liability isn't going away. Landlords can still seek judgments for rent. 
they can pursue uh, uh, judgments or rent against the tenants eventually. And at some point, the you know this is this is a it's essentially just granting you know a stay of eviction sure. on all tenants who aren't paying the rent. Eventually, the stay will be lifted. So tenants should understand that by not paying the rent, eventually the landlord is going to regain their power to evict them in some form or another. And the premier was pretty clear about that in his announcement. If you can pay your rent, you should pay your rent. So tenants really should be trying to, I think, reach out to their landlords and, and say, look, these, this, is the, this is the situation I'm in. This is what I can work out from now. Can we work out some kind of deal to defer rent, reduce rent, and reach that mutual ag- agreement with the landlord? And, you know, but then, the, you know, but the land, because the landlord is in a bit of a precarious position as well, in the sense that, you know, if they can, you know, there's talk about mortgage deferral, sure. uh, that sort of thing. But a mortgage deferral does come with, does come with a penalty of compound interest on that deferred payment. The bank isn't going to give up on what it's owed, and it's going to want what it's owed with interest. So, so if, Alex, yeah. is, is it possible that some tenants are going to go, look, okay, for this, let's say for round numbers, my rent is $2,000. The British Columbia government just announced it's going to pay $500 to my landlord this month. So if I can come up with 1500 are we clear and free for the month? Yeah, well, no. Uh, yes, if you if the, if you're a tenant, and your rent's two thousand dollars, and the government is paying the five hundred, and you're and you've applied to the government to make sure your landlord's getting paid the five hundred dollars direct. Right. Then yeah, your 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 remaining liability to your landlord is fifteen hundred dollars rent, and then you you know nothing nothing changes, right? Um, your landlord should be perfectly happy. They're getting all the rent that they're expected to. And if you're not right, but Alex, if you're not capable, and and many of us are already uh, dealing with no cash flow, many businesses have simply been shut down. There is no money uh, at all. So, in those instances where you know, and suppose you, and again, it's very important for tenants to cooperate at least to the extent where they uh, apply for the funding to go to their landlord to offset things by at least five hundred dollars. But you're suggesting that if you don't have the full amount of, of the balance remaining, you should at least reach out to your landlord and say, look, I can't cut it this month. I simply don't have the dough. Can we make an arrangement of some kind? And the landlord's obligation at that point, Alex, is to try to meet you halfway, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, and I think that landlords in this, in you know, the current situation are going to be, you know, somewhat incentivized to want to try and reach an agreement. You know, that no one's really going to you know, my, many uh, landlords that I've spoken to, you know, they've most of the tenants that they're uh, that they're dealing with, they're willing to reach an agree- agreement with them. Sure. As long as as long as both sides are being reasonable that, you know, they they live uh, out. You know, they, they see what's going on, too. They know a lot of people are getting laid off. They know that they can't evict anyone right now. So they have an ins- they have a built in incentive to try and reach. Uh, mutual understanding with their tenants, either to defer rent or temporarily reduce rent, what have you. To give rent even potentially, depending on, you know, each landlord uh, and tenant will have to reach their own agreement in that regard. Right. 
So, Alex, let's talk a couple of minutes about the free rent movement. And there's already, you're, you're a smart guy. You, you, you're checking the Twitter sphere all the time. You know there's a movement out there, not just here in B.C. either, but across the country where some tenants are going, well, it makes very little sense to bother paying rents during all of this, especially because, A, we have not a lot of money, and B, the government subsidies are starting to flow. What do you say to those people who are, who are looking forward to a few months of just not paying rent? Well, I'd say that there's nothing in what the government announced that says that you're entitled to free rent. Um, like I mentioned at the at the beginning, ten, the tenants are still liable to pay rent, and at some point or another, the other the other shoe will uh, will drop. I suspect on the on those tenants that just decide to completely ignore their their obligation to pay rent. You know if. You know, if your landlord is just, you know, if you just apply for the $500 subsidy, your landlord's getting 500 and getting back to your example of 2000, you're still, you still owe that 1500. Yeah. Now, and if you, and if you don't have any agreement with your landlord whatsoever, at some point, the government is going to lift, uh, once we're past this horrible, uh, epidemic crisis, the government is going to decide it's okay, you know, that it's not in the interest of public safety anymore that we have to halt all eviction. Right. And the norm and the normal rental market is going to start getting, uh, and the way it runs is going to start start running the way it normally runs. Well, and at that and at that point, you know, you're only going to you're you're going to be only be able to rely on either the agreement or the uh, good faith you have with your landlord to avoid an eviction at that point. Interesting. So any te- so any tenant that is interested in staying in their home in the long run and maintaining the goodwill that they have with their landlord should try and reach an agreement over whatever amount of rent isn't going to be covered by a government subsidy. Alex, thank you for this. No free rent, folks. No free lunch. Work it out. Do a deal. We are delighted to welcome Isabel McKenzie, BC Seniors Advocate, to the program this morning to talk about some of the announcements made by the government of British Columbia over the past few days. Isabel, thanks for this. Good morning. Good morning, Sterling. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Uh, Let's talk specifically about some of the uh, measures that have been announced in the past few days by various British Columbia government departments. Uh, Let's focus specifically, Isabel, on your mandate. Uh, What measures have the B.C. government introduced in the past few days that specifically address the needs of seniors? Well, one of the big initiatives that's come forward, Sterling, uh, from a all-party committee of the legislature that was convened by the minister, by Adrian Dix, is uh, Safe Seniors Strong Communities Initiative, which is a program that is going to use the 211, a, a number that already exists for information and referral, and it's going to reach out to all British Columbia now, before it was limited to the Lower Mainland and Vancouver Island. Now it will cover all of B.C., the interior and the north. And, so, and it will also have an added feature to it where people who want to volunteer to help seniors can phone in and they can give their information and their information will be forwarded to a community agency wherever they live. So if you're in Prince George, it will be a a community agency in Prince George. If you live in uh, Burnaby, it will be an agency in Burnaby. And uh, you will be matched with a senior who needs some help. So the senior who lives in uh, Vanderhoof or in um, Port Hardy can phone in and they can say, 
I need some help delivering my or getting my groceries. I need some help getting my medication. Mm-hmm. I'm feeling like I want to talk to somebody. We will the two one one agent will take their information, and that person will be matched with a volunteer in their community who can go and get the groceries for them or give them a phone call and make sure that they're feeling like they have a friend during this COVID uh, epidemic. Well, you know, and loneliness, of course, Isabel, at the very best of times is is a debilitating condition. And when there is loneliness compounded by fear uh, of the unknown, and we all share a, de- a degree of that, uh, it, does, it does really uh, highlight the need for human contact. So is it safe to say that effective... It's, I think it's April 1st, right? The 211 will effectively be the British Columbia Seniors Hotline? Uh, to some extent. It's, it's up and running now, although uh, we've been a bit overwhelmed by the response. So uh, some folks uh, certainly are getting through, but uh, unfortunately some folks are not getting through. So right. we're fixing that over the weekend. And certainly by uh, April 1st should be able to to take the thousands of calls that are coming in. And it is important to remember, Sterling, that while we are staying home, and we all clearly need to stay home, indeed, most of us are staying home with somebody else, but seniors are less likely to be living with somebody else. So, you know, when you're isolating, it looks one way when you've got your spouse or your kids around. It looks different when it's just you. And that is more so the case for seniors. So this virtual visiting, we call it, which is one of the services that we're asking people to volunteer for and one of the services that seniors are going to request, is really, really important. Um, The senior may not have another person in their house or in their apartment that they can talk to Mm -hmm. unless they get a phone call from somebody. And, you know, we're all concerned. We're all worried. Seniors are going to be a little bit more worried because this virus is uh, so much more serious and so much more dangerous if you're an older adult that it's compounding the anxiety that the rest of us are feeling by being worried about not just getting it, but possibly dying from it. Indeed, and of course we've known that right from the very beginning. Of course, the problems at the beginning particularly were getting younger people to appreciate how dangerous it was to them because, of course, the early indicators were that the most vulnerable were indeed elderly people, and and so young people took that as almost permission to ignore, which they've hopefully learned uh, was, a, was a bad step to take. But Isabel, you talked about being overwhelmed on this 211 senior line. By whom? Individuals willing to volunteer or by seniors reaching out for some help? Both. And I have to say, one of the most inspiring things has been this outpouring from the community of a desire to help uh, seniors. And and that was really um, the impetus for coming forward with this, that the committee saw there's this group of people out there who really want to help, and there's a group of people out there who really need the help, and we just have to find a way to match those two groups of people together. So wouldn't it be great if they could all phone a very simple three-digit phone number, we could get the names, and we could match them up. And that's basically what this is doing. You know, there's a lot of work in the background, as you can imagine. Of course. Got to do a little bit of screening of the volunteers, mm-hmm. and, uh, a little bit of... but but. In its most uh, simple form, that is what we're doing here. We're taking this groundswell of, of 
goodwill by um, um, tens of thousands of British Columbians to help the seniors in their community. Many of them are helping them already, Sterling. Many are not going to need to phone 211 because they've already reached out to their neighbors in the mm-hmm. condo uh, building or um, the elderly folks across the street, and they've slipped a note under the door, and they've, they've started that help already. And that's great. That's sort of being a good neighbor and something uh, most of us do, and most of us will rise to the occasion, which is clearly what we're seeing here. But then we're finding that there's uh, lots of people who have the capacity to help even more, and how are we going to harness that and and get it to the people um, out there who need the help? And that's where this Safe Seniors Strong Communities initiative came from. Well, it's very interesting, Isabel, because we are also at the beginning of creating a new level of infrastructure, hopefully, that will turn into a permanent thing, whereby there is a greater degree of contact available from both sides of the equation for individuals in the community willing to volunteer and share their energy and time, and uh, seniors who uh, would appreciate a little bit of attention directed at them. Thank you very much. I wanted to talk briefly, though, about seniors' care facilities, because, of course, we have uh, uh, far too much evidence of uh, what we were talking about at the beginning of the program in terms of vulnerable seniors and the COVID-19 virus. What can you tell us about measures being taken about seniors' care homes in our province? Well, there's been a series of measures and orders from the provincial health officers. So, First and foremost, one of the one of the early initiatives was to um, ask care homes to restrict their visitors to essential visits only. Indeed, and so that has um, that has been happening. It, that is not without uh, consequence. It it means that people are not able to see their loved ones and touch their loved ones as much as they were. They are encouraged, of course, to phone and to connect through other. Um, social media mm-hmm. platforms, and some of that's happening. Then uh, the latest uh, order that was given uh, by Dr. Henry was restricting care workers to work in one facility only. We know from the Lynn Valley outbreak and, and Harrow Park and others that uh, care workers, because they work in multiple sites, were bringing the virus mm-hmm. into different locations. And so the order was given, I think, on about Wednesday, and it uh, takes effect. Uh, had, was taking effect about three days forward, which is about now. Right. And so people have been scrambling in the background to work through what this is going to look like when workers can only work in one building, because many, as I say, will have you know five days in at one place, two days at another, or two shifts a day and one shift is at one and another shift is at another. And that's all over now, isn't it? It is. So it took a few days, you know, with moving parts uh, to find out how this would would be um, implemented because you have to end up with the same number of hours worked in the system or we're going to cause another problem. So somebody might work... um, 60 hours a week. They work 40 hours at one site and 20 hours at another. When you restrict them to one site, you don't want to pull those 20 hours out of the system because we need every hour of work we can get. Indeed, yeah. So the person would now work those 60 hours, but at one site instead of two sites. So you can see how getting that to work, um, moving all these um, 
schedules around on a board was going to take a few days, and that's what they've been working on. But uh, hopefully that has now been fully operationalized. Indeed. Isabel McKenzie, thank you for this. We appreciate you getting up early on a Saturday morning to join us on CKNW. Very important information. Thanks. Thanks very much, Sterling. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.